You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I remember as a kid watching an episode of The Simpsons where a character was trying to explain an art exhibit and basically he just said, it's weird for the sake of weird. When I think of weirdness in the art world, my first thought is always the surrealist movement. I feel like the surrealist movement of the early 20th century is where art really embraced the weirdness and the absurdity of the world around us. And really, there is no artist who better embodies that idea of weird for the sake of weird than Salvador Dali. I feel like who art ed? Who art is Mr. Wood <laughs> art ed me? Either way, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. That's off to a great start. Welcome to Who Arted, where we explore visual arts in an audio medium. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and joining me today, I have Christina Perro. Um, thank you very much for taking the time. Thanks so much for having me today, Kyle. I'm really excited to talk about Salvador Dali. Salvador Dali, such an interesting guy. And uh, I've got you on here for this episode because I I think you're in some ways sort of the relative expert. You did quite a bit of research on Dali yourself when you wrote your book, um, sort of a historical fiction work um, involving Dali as one of the characters, your book, Lucky, out in stores right now, right? Yes, correct. And it is a novel featuring one of the sort of larger than life and odder than real life characters of Salvador Dali, among other mm -hmm. um, true inspirations. And so as long as I have an author, a storyteller here, and it feels so totally in line with the spirit of surrealism, I'm going to give up a little bit of control. I'm going to let you be the expert. I'll interject Ooh. where I have something to add. But uh, go ahead. Tell us a little bit about Salvador Dali. Dali is one of the most celebrated artists of all time. He was an artistic genius and leader specifically in the field of surrealism. And just a refresher, surrealism is an art movement with undertones lying in geometry and modern physics that began in France in the 1920s. And it is characterized by dreamscapes and images that make the viewer question reality by delving into the depths of the subconscious. Yeah, I always find it really interesting. It it feels like it's this like rejection of reality in some ways and and I think like historically it's worth knowing, you know, you talked about it started off in France and I think of France in that time period, it was like 
ravaged by two world wars. And I think mm-hmm. if I if I lived through two world wars, I would reject reality too. I would want to insert my own. Such a great point. I think that the wars influenced Dali a lot. Um, you know, and the Spanish Civil War too was going on. There was a Spanish Civil War that went on during his lifetime, which also impacted his work. Yeah, he was still in Spain for the Spanish Civil War. He he moved to the U.S. later in life, like so many mm-hmm. other artists. But yeah, you're right. I, he Not just the World Wars, but the Spanish Civil War, too. Um, just a whole lot of awful in his life at that time. I know. And honestly, that's such a great... It's fitting in this time right now, because while we don't have a massive world war going on in the same way that they did, we also have experienced collective trauma over the past couple of years, year and a half with the pandemic. And I think that our generation, I think that maybe in the future, historians will look at back at this time in a similar way to how you're describing, you know, the 1920s in and around France. Yeah. I mean, you have these massive, you know, bits of upheaval that totally change the way that people look at the world around them and what they're prioritizing, how they connect to others and, you know, how they process everything. Absolutely. I think it, it creates this shared lens of shared experience for everybody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that also during that time, the 1920s um, in Europe, there were a lot of philosophers, like an uprising of intellectuals, philosophers, people who were just thinking and talking about why the world works the way it does and what reality is like. And I think that that was also influenced by the science happening at the time too. Um, And, you know, surrealism in and of itself is kind of a mixture of, of science and math and psychology and philosophy. And it really just incorporates so many interesting aspects of the world. And I think that it paints a picture that can teach us a lot about that time. Oh, absolutely. Because I mean, that time you had such influential thinkers like, you know, uh, Sigmund Freud, Carl Jung uh, were very influential in terms of psychology developments. But at the same time, as you talked about, you know, the physics, the science, that was the time Einstein was coming up with special relativity in the early 20th century. That idea, you know, the famous E equals MC squared, like the symbol of a smart idea. It came up in the early 20th century. I think that was like 1905-ish. It was somewhere around there, 1904, 1905, um, give or Mm -hmm. take, is when he was developing and writing about that. And all of that kind of is in the – it's out in the ether that is just, you know, out there for artists to – to look at and to think about and to process. And Dali, I felt like – was kind of making these visual representations and these unique interpretations of those different strains of philosophy and scientific inquiry and everything like that. Yeah, yeah. And some of those questions that like still don't have answers. You know, there's some things about life and 
our world that are unspeakable in a way. We don't have words to describe them. We don't maybe even have the science to describe it correct, fully. Um, and so art allows a different way to explore those ineffable concepts. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I got the sense that he was very much into the sort of paranormal or at least open to paranormal ideas. Um, I, I read somewhere that when he, um, he had an older brother also named Salvador Dali, who passed away exactly nine months before he was born. And his parents and um, Salvador Dali believed that he was the reincarnation of that older brother, which I find yes. is really just uh, an interesting way to come into the world and, and how that must weigh on you. And this idea of spirits guiding guiding you and your purpose and, and all of that in life. Um it seemed to be a specter that was looming large in his life, no pun intended. Um, oh, you know, for sure. And he talked it about started, it. But, yeah, go ahead. It started influencing him right away. I mean, he started doing art when he was a young boy. He, like you said, his brother died almost nine months to the day before he was born. And yeah, he like when he was three or four years old, his parents were telling him that he was the reincarnated version of his brother. Can you imagine the pressure and the thoughts that that small child must have had? It's, it's fascinating. But his, his childhood home was on the coast of Spain. And as a small boy, he fell in love with the ocean. He was particularly fascinated by the rocks on the shore. And when the sun shone and, you know, took its arc throughout the day, the shadows on the rocks changed form. And Dali, on his dad's sketch pad, took like precise drawings of these changing faces on the rocks. And that type of insight for such a young boy is remarkable. And you can't help but think that the traumatic place that he was brought into influenced that. I think that he even said that when he was in his mother's womb, he could feel the negative energy in his parents' like relationship, in the family dynamic. So it's which, just which that I've I like I don't know. I, I find really hard to believe. That's one of those things where I feel like Dali is creating his own legend of talking about his memories from inside the womb. Um, yes. You know, like I, I he was an odd dude, but not supernatural, you know? I mean true. I guess maybe according to him, he was, but uh, they, they did say that mustache lived on after he, after him. It like he was exhumed in like 2017, and they said his mustache still looked the same. Oh my goodness! Um, but but what you were saying about the way 
as a young child, he was looking at the shadows and capturing the way the shadows would shift. And I, I thought that was so interesting because not only was he one of those, um, I, I don't know if I would say prodigies, but definitely very, very skilled draftspersons, you know, an artist from an, an early age, everybody saw the potential. Um, but the talk about the way the shadows shifted, um, that would go on throughout his process. He talked about how he would stare at an object so long that basically it sounds like he just cracked mentally and he started to see it shift and morph into something else just from sitting and staring and I don't know, boredom, maybe daydreaming, call it what you will. He had, um, he had like a needlessly, you know, pompous way of describing it. What did he call it? Um, he was basically trying to access his subconscious. He called it paranoid critical. critical. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. The paranoid critical method. Um, which is another thing. Did, did he, I, I, I read that he met uh, Freud and shared his writings on the paranoid critical method. And Freud, who you would think like would totally love surrealism, was just like, yeah, not so much. Not my thing. Well, I think that Freud was actually more taken by Dali than you would imagine. Um, I think a, something that Freud wrote after meeting Dali was... For until now, I have been inclined to regard the Surrealists, who apparently have adopted me as their patron saint, as complete fools. That young Spaniard, Dali, with his candid, fantastical eyes and undeniable technical mastery, has changed my estimate. Okay, so see, I I guess I only knew part of that story. Um and and this is why I talk to people who know more than I do about a topic because <laughs> I kind of I kind of you know I kind of dabble in a bunch of stuff, but I like when someone can bring in that deeper context. And and I guess for context, I, we should identify Sigmund Freud was sort of the founder of the idea of psycho psychoanalysis. He was he was the guy who was always talking about people's dreams. He was a psychologist, very influential thinker in psychology in the early days, um, early 20th century. And his work and his ideas about dreams and the unconscious mind were very, very influential on the surrealist movement. Surrealist artists were trying things like automatic drawing or, um, you know, blind collaboration and free associations in order to get at that unconscious mind and sort of mm -hmm. let the unconscious speak through their art. Yes, for sure. What he would do is, I, I believe he played with the idea of sleep and the 10 to 15 minutes before you fall asleep were that paranoid critical area where yeah. you unlocked a part of your subconscious that just for him, he trained himself to then be able to paint that and he didn't even have a meaning behind what he was painting. Like he was painting, what he says is he was painting exactly what he was seeing in his subconscious. 
Yes. And and he he says that he developed that process. Um, everything I've read, uh, it, it does seem like he basically used sort of that tired state. And like I said, that's that process of just staring and mind numbing mm-hmm. boredom to get himself to to make those associations, get himself into that headspace to see things sort of transform and shift. Um, and I, I think that that is kind of interesting. Have you ever wondered who the Mary was from Bloody Mary? If the Loch Ness Monster was real or if Ouija boards actually worked? On each episode of the family-friendly Unspookable, we look at the histories and mysteries behind your favorite scary stories, myths, and urban legends to get the real stories behind the scares. Want to solve your next mystery? Find and follow Unspookable now wherever you get your podcasts. I, I also caught, did you say he, he said there was no sort of meaning to it? Is yeah. Is that right? See, mm-hmm. that's one of those things that I, I mean, on the one hand, I I can see it, the free associations, and you're trying not to to make meaning. At the same time, it's hard for me to look at his work and think it's pure random chance because it is so studied and meticulously rendered and we see so much that feels loaded with symbolism. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I don't want to call him a liar, but he was definitely a liar. I mean... He definitely was. <laughs> he lied all the time. He 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 sold Yoko Ono a blade of grass for $10,000, claiming that it was his mustache hair or something like that. <laughs> um, but I guess... I guess this would be maybe a good time for us to shift into the talk about a specific piece. We were going to talk about Persistence of Memory, the iconic Dali painting. Um, Mm -hmm. For those unfamiliar with Persistence of Memory, you probably think of it as the weird melting clocks in the desert, right? Yes. It's a great way to describe it. (laughs) Um, So do you want to go ahead, share what do you see, what do you connect to in this piece? Sure. Well, first of all, something that I didn't realize before was how small this piece actually is. Um, So the persistence of memory was painted by Dali um, in the 1930s, I think maybe 1930 or 1931. Okay. Um, And then within a few years, it was already given to the Museum of Modern Art in New York, where it currently resides. Most people are taken aback by the fact that it is so small. I think the exact specs are nine by nine, nine and a half inches by 13 inches. Yeah. So it's barely larger than your average sheet of paper. Yeah. It's like, yeah, exactly. So it's in a shadow box frame. It makes you feel like you're peering into a window so to speak, of Dali's eccentric reality. It's got melting clocks, drooping clocks, like you said. There's four of them. Three three clocks are drooping. One clock is closed and has ants swarming all over it. Um, There's a dead tree. There is, like you said, it's a desert, a desolate desert landscape. There's just a lot of themes of death and decay, um, just warped reality, 
Yeah, it's interesting. Like the warped reality, because, you know, I always start off with just like, you know, what's going on here? And it is it's surreal. It's dreamlike. It doesn't make sense. This could never happen in the real world, because if the desert were hot enough to melt the metal on those clocks, that tree would have burst into flames long ago. You know what I'm saying? And Mm -hmm. and yet we see the metal seeming like it's dripping over over the wood. Um, Yes. And it's interesting. You talk about the 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 theme of decay. I I see that a little bit with like the ants crawling all over something, you know, you, you get that sense, like when bugs are crawling all over something, you get that sense of sort of rot and decay. But at the same time, this doesn't feel to me entirely rot and decay. It feels to me almost confused. You know, I, I think of, um, and maybe this is just because I primed myself for this because we talked about Einstein if, like a few minutes ago, mm-hmm. but I'm thinking of Einstein's theory of relativity and how sort of the time dilation aspect, you know, time, yeah. time is warped. It is mm-hmm. a dimension like length, width, depth, and time is also distorted by gravity and by speed as we're traveling all of that sort of stuff it affects time and i see this kind of trying to wrap your your head around that and i'm i'm thinking of like a dreamscape where i see that odd central figure that kind of just fades into the black it kind of it kind of feels to me like you know when you see something out of the corner of your eye you don't see all of it so defined You kind of get some of the contours, but not entirely there. And I kind of feel like that's how things are in dreams, too, where it's like you kind of see the contours, but it kind of drifts in and out. And I feel Mm -hmm. like the the warping of these clocks and the the fading of that figure, it all kind of gets to me this unsettled dream time kind of quality. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think that dreams are really interesting in general because it brings into question reality. And when you're dreaming, what's happening isn't happening in reality. But if you remember what happens in your dream and you have the memory of it, how is that any different than your memory of things in your day-to-day life. Yeah, and and then, you know, to take that to another level, you start to think about, well, what is reality? Because everything is just our brain's interpretation of the stimuli that are happening, you know, the photons that are bouncing off of things into my eyes that, you know, the the rods and cones are going to translate to electrical impulses that go into the brain. And when we talk about the persistence of memory, because that is the title of the piece. And, you know, no matter what he says, I don't think his stuff was random. When we talk about (laughs) persistence of memory and what we know about how memories are accessed and essentially to your brain, when you're remembering something, you're there, you're experiencing it again. And when we do remember something, our brain also kind of fills in gaps and alters those memories to some extent. And mm-hmm. so from what I understand, and this is this is me as someone with like a bachelor's in coloring talking here, so take it with a giant grain of salt. But from <laughs> what I understand, like most of our memories 
are not actually true to what literally happened. Even those so-called flashbulb memories of like really big events, a lot of people kind of get wrong um, on a lot of the facts because every time we access it and recall it, we kind of alter it because we're telling a story and filling in the gaps. I was just going to say, like you were talking earlier about our reality our reality is just the story that our brain tells us. And you're right. It's like telephone. Every time a story is passed on, details change slightly. And it's the same, it's the same concept, even in your own mind. And when you become aware of that, that really makes your idea of reality less stable. And I think that Dali was playing around with that dis or instability. I don't know what that word is. Yeah, there's this the incongruity, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, it, I mean, it is destabilizing. Like I find mm-hmm. myself as I'm looking at and talking about this, like my mind is melting. I feel like one of those clocks. I mm-hmm. feel like I don't know what reality is anymore as I am looking at Salvador Dali's nightmare desert landscape. Um, you know, I just look at this and 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 it gets me to think of all of those things. And like I say, the persistence of memory, thinking about sort of how we process things and it becomes a little bit mind bending in a way that can be discomforting, but it gets you to think about stuff that kind of can be helpful to understand navigating the world because as, as much as some of this stuff, it it becomes an abstraction that it doesn't seem like it has a lot of real world implications. I think understanding that when we access memories, we alter those memories and we alter the narrative. It kind of helps us to be a little bit more forgiving of somebody when maybe they tell something that doesn't seem entirely factually correct. You know what I'm talking about? I love that. I think that it helps you be more forgiving in general of yourself too. Yeah. And we all need that. Yeah. Anything else you want to say about this piece? Because I feel like being nice and being good and forgiving seems like a, about a good place I can wrap it up on when we're talking about Dali. That's true. The only other thing that I guess I would want to say that I didn't say is the creature that you see falling asleep in the desert. Um, If you look at it the right way, it seems to be Dali's profile. And you can see his eyelashes and his nose and his mustache. And um, I think that that adds an interesting element to the painting as well, because he turns it, a little bit to himself too and shows perhaps shows that this is just part of the exploration of Dolly. Yeah, totally. I mean, I feel like Dolly was always about Dolly. You don't walk around with such an eye-catching look if you don't want attention. <laughs> he he seems talked like about he himself up. in third person. Of course he, he say, did. Of course Dali, he did. Blah, 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 blah. Dolly, blah, 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 blah. Uh. There are a ton of interviews 
that he has done that are accessible to us on YouTube, on, I don't know, there's a bunch of documentaries and stuff. And he's a man that is worth seeing for yourself. Yeah, I've, I've seen a lot of it. It's, yeah. He's an interesting guy. He, I mean, he, he sure went for is. it. I'll give him that. He went for it. Um, he did. He was one of the first artists to make himself a brand. Yeah, he was kind of doing that before Warhol mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of paved the way. And I'm wrapping it up. I want just a three-point rating scale. And where should this hang? The Louvre? Is this something to look at? The lab? The lab. Is this something to learn from? Or the loot. British for the bathroom. Yeah, there's the a loot joke in there somewhere. Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. I think it's a combination between a lab, the lab and the Louvre. Or I'm not the Louvre, the museum. The yeah. museum. <laughs> <laughs> Lou and Louvre, it, it gets a little difficult. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> because I do think that, like you said, there is definitely symbolism in Dolly's work. If nothing else, and I know we didn't have time to cover his fascination about the golden ratio, but that was something that I was exploring in my book um, was his connection with this idea of the golden ratio. It is said to be the proportion of perfect beauty. Yeah. And so Dolly played around a lot with that in his, his work, but especially through the years, um, like when he, his later works, for example, the surrealist flower girl and King, which is the flower girl is the rose for a head girl. Mm -hmm. And the surrealist King is the like boy figure that has a, um, has a sea star, um, a sand, what are those called? Shoot. The starfish? Starfish. Yes, yeah, starfish. <laughs> Thank you. Um, has a starfish for a head. And both of those imageries are, you know, roses and starfish are part of the golden, golden ratio, golden number, golden proportion yeah. folklore. Um, and so I see his work getting increasingly more spiritual and almost religious divine Mm -hmm. he might say as he as the years go on and I think that he alludes more and more to the golden ratio and is trying to make that a symbol of his work there's a really interesting interview of Dali on the Dick Cavett show he brings a pet anteater he's and anteaters are also associated with the golden ratio he talks about how he um brought a rolls royce filled full with of broccoli or a oh, cauliflower to, that's right yes yeah. to a different um interview that's a golden ratio reference so i i think that there definitely is deep symbolism in his work and in that like to that extent i do think that it deserves to be studied more. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I think just for the sake of being argumentative, I'm going to go with the Lou, just because I, I don't know, I, I, Dolly is one that I have a hard time with, because on the one hand, I, 
cannot possibly deny his skill. And at the same time, I look at it and it's just like, he seems so obnoxious with the mustache and the, you know, the Rolls Royce full of cauliflower and, and all of that sort of stuff. Um, there's a, there's a pretentiousness to it that like, mm-hmm. I get like, he, he definitely it thinks through things. Like I, I, I can't knock him for that. There is stuff to be gleaned from it, but I, I just, his, his work is like the eat your vegetables part of art history for me, where it's just like. Yeah, I guess I got to take it, but I don't want to keep it around. (laughs) (laughs) So so you would very much disagree with Salvador Dali's sentiment that each morning when I wake, I experience again a supreme pleasure, that of being Salvador Dali. I mean, he definitely loved himself and there's something to be learned there, too, I guess. Um, but yeah, I'm not as big a fan of him as he was. So, yeah, uh, I, I do think that that is a good lesson though, is that regardless of the outside noise, the answers have always been able to be found inside yourself. And I think that Dali epitomizes that. And while he is pretentious, while he is flamboyant and eccentric, odd, I, I think that he's worth taking a closer look at. Yeah. I, you know, like uh, to each his or her own. I, I appreciate Absolutely. your taking the time to guide me through one that I kind of needed to get through, but was not looking forward to because persistence of memory, you know, it is undeniably a great iconic work and it is an important work to understand the surrealist movement and Salvador Dali and his place in history. And I really appreciate your taking the time with all of your knowledge and your expertise from your research on your, on your book, Lucky. Thank you very much. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted? If you found this tolerable, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week in the show notes on Twitter at WoodArtEd and on the website whoartedpodcast.com. Podcast done.